Welcome to Building the Future, hosted by Kevin Horick. With millions of listeners a month, Building the Future has quickly become one of the fastest rising programs with a focus on interviewing startups, entrepreneurs, investors, CEOs, and more. The radio and TV show airs in 15 markets across the globe, including Silicon Valley. For full showtimes, past episodes, or to sponsor the show, please visit buildingthefutureshow.com. Welcome back to the show. Today we have Frank Zingini. He's the founder and CEO of Applied Visions. Frank, welcome to the show. Nice to be with you, Kevin. Yeah, I'm excited to have you on the show. I, I think uh, you have a ton of experience in this space and, and kind of around startups and software and everything. But maybe before we get into all that, let's get to know you a little bit better and start off with where you grew up. Sure thing. Well, <laughs> I grew up like right down the street from where I'm sitting right now in my office. It's a little That's town awesome. on the North shore of Long Island called Northport. Okay. Uh, born and raised here. here local in the island, State University of New York at Stony Brook and ended up with the company and headquartered it right, right here in Northport. I look okay. out the window to Northport Harbor. That's cool. So you went to university. What did you take and why? I went to Stony Brook to study electrical engineering, and the why is sort of an interesting success story for the school system. Um, it was because I got exposed to it in a really cool shop class in my high school. There was an electronics shop class where we had these cool little kits that we used to build various things, and the teacher was terrific, a guy named Bruce Matier, who has since passed. I loved him. And I learned all about electrical engineering in high school and decided I wanted to do that and went to Stony Brook for double E. And then in the course of four years of studying electrical engineering, got exposed to software because we did a lot of microprocessor work out there. And I kind of really took a liking to writing software. So I stayed on and got a master's in computer science. So I got both of them covered. Interesting. Okay. So walk us through your journey and then coming up with and founding Applied Visions. Journey. I never looked at it that way before. Well, I had a couple of... Uh, regular day jobs out of college. I had interned at a company pretty much all through my college years. It happened to be in a company that my father was a co-founder of that made simulation and training devices primarily for the military, mostly aircraft simulators, oh, also nuclear power plant simulators. All kind of, it was the most fun I've ever had in a job, even to this day. We used to build the coolest stuff and fly airplanes and all that kind of stuff. And I'd interned there in college, and then when I graduated, I went and worked there full-time for probably another four years. The company got acquired, and things changed, and they eventually scaled down, so I moved on and um, worked another five years at a company that's still here in Long Island. It's a, one of the groundbreaking companies in computer graphics equipment for TV called Chiron. Okay, sure. You'll hear about them today. A lot of people hear that word on TV about the Chiron. That's the text at the bottom of the screen. That's where the name comes from. That's cool. Um, and then I had an opportunity to build a helicopter simulator as a moonlighting project for a guy who'd started up a company here on the island. And I did that at night and weekends and enjoyed that. And then he asked me to do another project. So I decided to uh, quit my day job and start doing this freelance and did that for a couple of years and got a project and got another project and hired a guy and hired another guy. And at some point I had four or five people come to work in my basement. So we moved into an office and it kind of grew from there. This was all, I mean, I, I think 
Started the company in 1987. So what is that about 31 years, 32 years, something like that? Yeah, like that's a, that's a long time. So walk yes. us through how Applied Visions has kind of evolved and changed over 30 plus years. Well, evolved is, is one thing. We have grown from, as I said, me and a couple of people in my basement to now we've got, oh, I think we have about 68 people here at wow. ADI and some wow. other companies that we can talk about later. <clears throat> um, over those 30 something years, we've seen a lot of changes in technology and in the way things are built and the way things are delivered. And I've kind of always focused on the customer and the goals and less on the technology. A lot of consulting companies will, you know, wave a flag saying we're experts in this technology or that technology. And we always tried to focus mostly on the customer, what they really needed, what their businesses were, how we could make them better with tech. And that paid off in the long run because as technology changed, we were just able to roll with it and go from workstations to personal computers, to websites, to cloud, to mobile, to IOT. We just rolled with all the changes in the industry from a technology standpoint by having a constant focus on the customers, on what they really need to get out of the technology and how we can make their businesses better. Um, there's a lot of little tributaries to this river. Uh, at the turn of this century, um, things have changed a lot in our industry. People like to talk about the tech wreck and all that, but the bigger change for us was the internet enabled people to go offshore for the kind of work that we were doing. Right. So our business was impacted. So at that point, around 2001, Actually, it's earlier than that, around 2000, we spun off an activity of doing research and development for the federal government okay. as a nice, stable way of maintaining an onshore team while we adapted to other changes in the market. And that grew over the years, and we still do that work. We primarily do R&D in areas of cybersecurity for oh, the Department of Defense and for the Department of Homeland Security and to a lesser extent for the intelligence community. Um, but the other software development activities kind of grew back as we learned to adapt to the offshore challenge and things change. And so we kind of grew that part back up again, but we still do the government R and D. Um, I'm going to ramble a bit here. No, One of the things that came out of that government funded R and D was we developed a technology for supporting what's known as application security, which is the process of making sure that the software that we write, um, doesn't have bugs in it that bad people can take advantage of, which is how most of the network attacks happen nowadays. Right. And um, that technology led to a spinoff company because it was part of a government program where they not only encourage you, but require you to commercialize the work that you do in your research. It's a program called the SBIR program. So we spun off a company called CodeDX and last September took a seed round of funding into that. And we're now moving toward an A round. So that's uh, that's moving along. So, and then what's the other thing? Oh, the other thing that was in there is about three and a half, actually now four years ago, I acquired a small company in the Pittsburgh area that was a specialist in embedded systems devices and internet of things engineering. And kind of going back to my roots of electrical engineering, we actually design and build the devices themselves over there and then do the embedded systems programming to add the intelligence to those devices. So now between all these businesses, we can address anybody's digital needs from the cloud to the desktop to mobile devices, down to internet of things devices. And then we can also make sure that everything has been developed up and down that chain is secure. That's a long way from my basement. No, I, I think that's awesome though. I, I think that's the interesting thing I think where we're at in kind of today's technology landscape is so much stuff is going or the internet is going back into the physical world, into things. But I also think a lot of the stuff that we do 
kind of physically, some of it's getting pushed into software, into the cloud, partly because of what's happening right now at the pandemic and, and everything else going on. But I also think that a lot of that was going to potentially happen anyway. It just kind of got yeah. sped up a little bit. What are your I thoughts around that. that? Well, I agree with what you just said. I don't think anything is happening today strictly because of the pandemic. As you pointed out, it may be happening sooner than expected. Um, but the whole dissociation of the workspace and people wanting to work from home and working remotely, it's sort of fascinating to see it happening so quickly. And we all have different opinions about that, but it is happening. Um, and yeah, even the ability of devices or products or just things in the world to suddenly participate in a digital relationship with a customer or with a user uh, was, was moving along incessantly and just kind of got sped up by this because now all of a sudden people are really thinking twice about putting something out in the field that might require you to send a truck out there to serve it. Um, and if that thing that you put in the field has the ability to phone home and ask for service only when it needs it, you can reduce the risk to your staff by only rolling a truck out there when it's absolutely necessary instead of having some weekly schedule or something like that. That's just one of many examples of how intelligent devices are being used today to deal with the fact that we don't have quite the physical freedom that we used to because of the pandemic. But all this was happening anyway. All of it, I think, was inevitable. Um, you could argue that or not it's a good thing, but it was inevitable uh, that we would leverage this technology to do the things that we're doing. No, I 100% I agree. I, I think the other thing then that you mentioned that I really want to cover that I think a lot of companies don't do that I think is kind of stupid is so many people tr have one technology and they try to jam every project into that technology where you really need to pick technology that works for the product or the platform or whatever you're trying to build. Because part of the, part of the thing that's interesting about, I think that is the user doesn't care what happens when they click that button or like how, how cool the technology is behind it. They just want it to do what that button's supposed to do and, or take them to where they need to do or, or, or whatnot. Right. And so I think as somebody in technology, we get so wrapped up in the latest and greatest sometimes where we actually forget like what's the best possible technology and solution for what we're actually trying to do. Do you want to elaborate on why that's so important? You're absolutely right. I don't know that I'd go so far as to call it stupid simply because I probably perpetrated that a few times in my career also. Uh, it's it's a natural inclination. It's probably been going on since the first guy carved a wheel out of stone and then looked for ways to use a wheel. We all tend to do that. But sure. um, I learned pretty early on in this business. And in part, it was because of, you know, people think things change so quickly now and it's never been that way before, but it's always been that way. And things were changing very quickly when I got I started this company kind of just on the cusp of the personal computer right. transition where you went from using expensive workstations to, gee, I can do that on a PC. Um, so I learned very early on to roll with the technology shifts because they are relentless to focus instead on what the goals are. Um, so yeah, I'm sure I've been guilty from time to time of saying, I really want to do that in whatever, Python. I got to do something in Python. Let me do that in Python. That's not really what we do though. It's, it's what is the right tool for the job? What is the most sensible tool for the job? And it is, not unusual in our space to have people be tool focused or be technology focused and say, 
everything's got to be done this way from now on. And of course, some number of months or years from now, that thing that you thought was the answer to everybody's problem has faded away. Yeah. So it's got to be all about what the goal is. What problem are you trying to solve? What opportunity are you trying to create? What pain are you trying to alleviate? Whatever it is, it's about the end goal. No, I 100% I agree with you. I think the interesting thing, though, is because you've been doing this for so long, how have you stayed afloat and survived some of the big like dot-com crash and 2008 and you know even just kind of the pandemic like how have you kind of innovated and stayed relevant to stay afloat uh you know i never looked back and examined it that closely i think one of the keys is to just be patient okay and flexible um that kind of leads to resilience. Really what you're describing is resilience. And um, you know, we have been resilient because we've been through a lot of changes. I've had times where I've had to downsize. I've had times I've had to grow back up quickly. Um, it's, I hate to keep beating the drum, but by keeping our focus on helping customers, I've been able to continue to help customers even when certain conditions have made that difficult, or maybe we've had to scale things down. I've been you know, willing to absorb losses in the hopes of being able to grow back later. Um, I have not reacted uh, rashly to changes in situations, uh, a little slowdown. I don't run out and lay off half the staff. I've been very judicious about conserving resources through years, so we would have the ability to be flexible. I have a fantastic team of people across the board, the technical people, the administrative people, my financial people, they're all wonderful people. I don't, I don't want to let them go. And, and they're all very clear eyed and understanding about the realities of the world. And when things happen out there, we just all band together and deal with them. No, I, I think that's, that's really good advice. So for people that are looking to maybe offer software as a service, in their business to their customers or to their uh, competitors maybe, or, or a bit of both. What's your advice for people that haven't got, haven't done anything in the software space that are looking to maybe get into the software space? When you say get into the software space, you mean in off using software to serve customers or to get into the space of actually writing software for other people like I do? I wasn't sure well, I, I guess like, if they were looking to build like their own SaaS business that they could maybe charge a recurring okay. revenue to their clients and or their competitors. Using technology yeah. to grow their business, which is, which is what I love talking about. Um, I have a lot of advice to people thinking that. I mean, if you, if you introduce me to somebody who had this idea for something that could be become a SaaS platform who had no experience whatever in building software, my first advice would be to take whatever expectations you might have from various things you've heard through the years about what it takes to build software and multiply it. It's always harder and slower and more costly than pretty much anyone ever expects other than people who actually build software for a living. Sure. Um, and you know, that may sound self-serving, but it's an important thing because nothing crushes your dreams like lost expectations and if you go into something like that with some great idea for some new business and you think you can be out in front of the market and, and doing business and 
and transacting and making money and all that with uh, you know a, a tiny investment in technology, you're you're kidding yourself. You've got to be willing to hunker down, do it right, take the time, and and build something that will serve your customers properly and that will scale properly, so you can grow a business around it. And then the next thing I would tell them to do is put down their pencils and go out and start talking to customers. Um, a lot of people with great ideas for businesses have those ideas in their heads and think they know better. Um, and history is filled with legendary people who did know better. And most people aren't those legendary people. And your best bet is to really understand who your customers are, what they think you can do for them versus what you think you can do for them. And just really question all of your assumptions, learn from your customers, build technology in small steps so you can put things in front of your customers very early just to try out your ideas. Don't pour all of your resources into creating your great big version one that you're gonna launch in nine months to a to great fanfare and expect to sign up a million users in the first month. No, start small, prototype, test, stay in total contact with your customers. No, I, I think that's really good advice. I think part of the problem is you see so many people yeah, take two years to build this thing. And then it's like they get some negative feedback on something because they didn't do their market research. And then sometimes you have to rewrite the whole thing or parts of it, or sometimes you're out of money and you, you have to shut it down, right? Yep. Your, your customers will tell you the truth if you ask them, which you have to ask them. Well, and I also think your, your customers are the only the ones that are willing to pay you for your solution because I find so many people sometimes chase their tail trying to add features for these like potential customers and then they end up forgetting about their core customers that are actually paying them and evolving the roadmap of their product around their paying customers instead of trying to chase these potential customers or, or what's your thoughts around that? Uh, it actually cuts both ways. It's interesting you say that. <clears throat> On the one hand, you're absolutely right. If you have a core constituency that is keeping your business going, you can never take your eye off of that ball. You've got to make sure they're happy. Um, yes, you should be looking to expand your market always. And you can do that in small steps and try something and test, try something and test. Do not forsake your current customers to go chasing after some ideal new thing uh, because you're putting yourself at huge risk. The flip side of that is you also have to be judicious in how you respond to your good customers when they ask for things that may be unique to them. And that'll happen all the time. Right. And the worst of it is when it happens sort of somewhere in the middle where you're pursuing a new customer and you think that this fantastic new customer and they say, your project is great. We just needed to do this one other thing. And if that other thing is something that was on your roadmap anyway, and you just want to accelerate that, good for you. If that other thing doesn't quite fit what you're doing, but you're thinking, well, if I just do that, I can sign this great new customer. I'll guarantee you, they'll come up with four other things after you do that. Yeah. You have to be very careful about how you respond to that just one more thing sort of attitude. So you're absolutely right. You can never, you got to stick to your knitting, take care of your customers who got you to where you are, because they'll keep you where you are. But also don't let the, you know, the heavyweight customers push you around either because that will distract from other things. So then how do you balance what new features to add and what new features to not add? Is there like, it's, that can be so tricky, right? Even with your paying customers, they're like, we really would like your product to do X, Y, and Z, 
How do you decide which of those to do or not do? Uh, every one of them is a process. Uh, you have to look at each one of those things. And first of all, you should be disciplined enough to have your own roadmap of, of where you think you need to go because you should always be looking out into the future. Um, so you've got your roadmap, you know what you're planning, but you're always testing it against your audience. And sure, you're gonna learn about some new things that people want. You look at how that fits into your roadmap. If it's organic, okay, you work that in. If it's a total diversion, you have to look really closely at it. What's the payback for this? What is the opportunity cost? If I do that, how many things on my roadmap am I not gonna do? Um, mostly, and, and of course you have to look at the, the level of difficulty. That's where your, your tech team comes involved. So this customer wants this thing, and I think it's a very strategically valuable thing to do. What will that take? And your tech team might say, that's insane, that'll take a year. Uh, and you have to listen to them. So now I'm, I'm speaking here to the business owner, the business manager, the person who's not themselves a technologist or a developer, which is most of the world. They have to learn to listen carefully to their tech team, always with a grain of salt, as you do with anybody. Um, listen religiously to their customers, listen to their own gut, and then you just have to weigh these things off. But the thing that I think most people forget to think about when they deal with these questions is the opportunity cost. If I use my resources to do this thing, what are the things that I won't be doing instead? And you have to weigh those two things against each other. And that gets forgotten sometimes in the heat of the moment. Yeah, that's fair. I also think it's, it can be so challenging, especially as like a new company or a new startup to not try to please everybody, right? And sometimes you end up just chasing your tail or you get nothing done because you have bits and pieces of a bunch of new features uh, ready to go. It is extremely tempting, especially if you're in a startup kind of mode and you're living hand to mouth and you think, oh, if I do this for this customer, they'll write me a check and that let me live another six months. Um, it's, it takes an enormous amount of self-discipline to look at every one of these things critically and ask yourself all those hard questions. Is this the right thing to do? Is it even possible to do it? Am I opening up a can of worms here? Um, do they mean what they say? Uh, fellow I knew for many years, worked here for a while, used to love to say the buyer's a liar. Uh, you've <laughs> always got to be cynical with what people are telling you. Um, you know, all these things land on your shoulders, the person who's making all of this stuff happen, and you have to deal with those decisions. It is quite easy in the heat of a moment to get pulled into something and then sometime down the road a ways, you're gonna look back over your shoulder and say, how did we get here? And you'll, you'll, you'll be able to figure out how you got there, um, but you may not have a chance to try again by that point. So sure. discipline, self-awareness, um, try not to believe your own press releases too much, all those sorts of things. Um, it's, it's tough sometimes to maintain a level head. And this is, doesn't just apply to startups. I've dealt with established businesses decided to make the step and go digital, which is what we do here. And I applaud it. I love doing that. I love enabling companies to start working a new way with digital technology, but they might allow one particular customer or supplier to, to sort of drive their decision-making because, oh, it's my biggest customer or oh, it's my most important supplier. And sometimes that's okay. And sometimes that might lead you astray. And I do everything I can to help these customers make the right decisions at times like that, but in the end it falls on their shoulders. Sure. No, that, that makes sense. So 
you've talked about kind of adapting new tools and technologies as they've come uh, up. How do you decide which new technologies to chase and not chase? Because there's been some big ones in the last few years that I think some people jumped on and they didn't really go anywhere. And obviously the reverse of that, where there's been some new technologies that have come in and been really successful. That's still, and that's been true throughout the entire history of all things technical. Um, well, you used a, an important word, which is chase. And basically I try not to chase anything. Okay. Um, because it doesn't really serve my customers very well. If I chase some technology and try and you know, force fit it into an application, we stay on top of everything. Um, we spend a, a not inconsiderable amount of time and money with internal projects, trying things out. Okay. Um, the, the R and D that I talked about before, the cybersecurity R and D, and we've done other, uh, unrelated types of work under various R and D programs gives us a chance to try things out because that's what you're supposed to do in R and D, try new things out. Um, and that's great. For example, we had a whole series of projects that was a heck of a lot of fun where we were using uh, 3d computer game engines, unity, in fact, which I think sure. is about to go public or just did um, for operational missions in various defense domains. We did one for the Navy. We did one really cool one for the army about planning dismounted infantry missions where you would figure out if a team to get from here to there in a certain amount of time to do something, how much, how many supplies would they have to carry? How much water do they need? How much food did they need? Because we knew all about the weather in the area and the terrain, fascinating stuff. And we did all that with game engines. So it was a way to really learn a lot about 3D game engines and their physics models and their audio models and all the great stuff that's in them. Uh, a not necessarily risk-free, but a low risk way because R&D like this, everybody understands with R&D, you may or may not get to the conclusion everybody thought you might get to, it's, it's research. So those are the ways we look to, to try and explore new things without just foisting it off on a customer when it's not ready. So we, we did a bunch of internal mobile projects when the iPhone first came out. We, we learned how to do that by building little things and putting them out into the app stores, little toys, little games. We developed these capabilities long before we actually brought that technology to bear to service a customer. So I, I, I try not to chase things. Interesting. I, I actually think that's really good advice. And you're right. I think so many people just like you, you need to play with things on your own time if you want to get better and see what you can actually use in, in the real world. And I think it it's, can be so dangerous to try new technology on a real project. And then you find out kind of in the 11th hour that, it's not going to work. Right. And that can be like startup crushing or even project crushing. Yep. Absolutely. Um, maturity in technologies is a virtue. Um, so unless your, your role is in fact to try out new things as we do with our research projects, you should really avoid those new things. If your role is really to get something useful done. Sure. Well, and, and especially, I guess, obviously it really depends on the project or the software you're trying to build, but yeah. in your case of like a government project or something that really needs security, you need uh, a really well-known established kind of technology stack to make sure that you can deliver 
exactly what you want and have the most security as possible, or at least the ability to constantly upgrade, upgrade and maintain that security. Yep. That, that's exactly what I meant by maturity. You know, if, if, you're, if your commitment is to help someone's business thrive or help your own business thrive through the application of technology, you've got to be really cautious about what technology you apply. And that goes back to my, my maturity models. And people talk about the maturity model of software. You want to use things that are reliable, robust, and secure. There are, one way to look at it is to say, if, if I feel like the only way I can solve this problem is to apply this brand new untested technology, I'm really understanding the problem correctly. Am I correct? Am I right? Is it that this is a problem that up until yesterday could not be addressed through technology at all because nobody had invented the right thing to do it. And now this thing came out today and that will enable us to solve this problem. That's, that's bleeding edge stuff. Good for you. As long as your customer, whether it's an internal or an external customer understands that they're right there in the bleeding edge with you and you're trying this thing out because nothing else will solve their problem. But when people, and this, there was lots of history of this, particularly around you know, the, the first wave of internet, but it still happens to today where, you know, a customer, and again, it could be an internal customer, be your own company, be an external customer, but customer just needs to have this capability built to service some other customer. And the tech team says, well, this would be a great place to try out fill in the blank, Ruby, Scala, whatever. There's always something new and interesting that you could try out here. And wouldn't it be cool if that worked because we could do this one thing, but if it wasn't really necessary to do that risky work to satisfy that need, you probably would have been better off just dusting off your .NET or your job, whatever, and do it in a way that you can predict and you know will serve your customer's need. Sure. So for maybe businesses that have been around for a long time that maybe are, know they should go digital or, or are scared to go digital, what advice do you have for them and how do you work with companies like that to get them comfortable to actually making the leap into moving at least part of their business online or, or, or you know, on a mobile app or, or a bit of both? Well, the first advice, of course, is to call me. I would have to say <laughs> that. But to be serious about it, you have to talk to someone like me. And by like me, I mean someone who isn't sitting here with a bag of tools just waiting to try them out on something, but can have a conversation with you at the level of your business and your business understanding and talk about how technology might fit into that and what it would take to get there. The mistake a lot of people fall into, and again, I'm talking about people as you just described who aren't themselves well-versed in, in this sort of technology, but who understand what's happening in the world and they understand they should be in the cloud and maybe they should be a SaaS or they understand that stuff and not their first instinct is oftentimes to say, I guess I need to get a programmer. And that's way too much of a leap. That's like saying, I want a new house. I better go find me a good frame. Um, you really have to start out with the big picture and talk to someone that can understand your business and understand the technological landscape well enough to plot a course for your business to get into that landscape. And that means at the, starting at the highest levels of abstraction and working your way down. There's way more, and this is a drum that I beat with a lot of customers. There is way more 
to building any software solution to anything than just a programmer or a couple of programmers, especially today, especially with expectations the way they are for things being delivered over the web, in a browser, on a phone, uh, how these things look and feel, how come uh, pick something, you know, my, my Citibank app is so much better than this thing you just gave me, right. all that stuff. You need user experience designers, you need artists, you need all these other capabilities that are ten, not tangential is the wrong word, are supportive of the people who then roll up their sleeves and write the code to make this stuff actually work. If you don't have all those disciplines working together, you're gonna end up with something that a programmer wrote and it's gonna look and feel like something that a programmer wrote and it's not gonna be a terribly satisfying experience for you or your customers. Sure, yeah, you, you need to really understand <clears throat> like why you're using technology and what technology is actually solving for you because just digitizing a process can work out, but it rarely, rarely works out or meets your expectations or does what you really want it to do because right. you didn't really plan it out. Right, exactly. You gotta take a step back and look at the overall picture and don't just dive in and have somebody start coding something. And I also think too, do you wanna talk about the maintenance of that and the ongoing costs? Cause I think a lot of people forget about that or don't understand that, that like, you know, your Chrome browser is getting updated every eight weeks and there's a new beta of Android and iOS every six months or an official release. Right. And yep. like things are changing so fast that the main, you have to maintain these things. You can't just let them sit there and expect them to work forever. Absolutely. Something I tell all of my customers that somehow never seems to make them feel better is that if you're lucky, you're never finished. Yeah. Because it means people are using what you built. Yeah. And if you're using what you built, you're going to have problems with what you built. Like you said, Chrome version, whatever, 15, 19, 20 comes out and something stops working. Windows 30 is launched and something else stops working. You're dealing with these problems, especially in the mobile. I mean, mobile devices change at an alarming rate. Yeah. We're always having issues in supporting mobile users because a new phone came out and the app looks funny on that new phone because, oh, it's got this folding screen. Okay, great. Yeah. Um, <laughs> these are all headaches, but the... Presumption here is that if you are experiencing these headaches, it's a good thing because it means your customers are using your technology and if the technology you built was built for the right reasons, it's generating business for you. So the fact that they're using it and having these problems is a good sign. But yeah, you cannot, it's not a fire and forget thing. You don't just build it and walk away. You know, you can build a house and when the, the, the general contractor finally hands you the keys and leaves, yeah, you have to change the roof in five years and you might do this. It's not that way in software. It's a nonstop supportive activity. Sure. So how do you, or what advice do you give to people that are looking to get into the space, but they don't even really know where to start? Like, do you try to just work on a small project or, or small piece of their business to digitize or, or what's your recommendation to, to kind of get started? That is always the best way is to take a little bite, take a, take a piece, try it out. We do this a lot with customers. Someone has a whole business and they have this vision about how the whole business can be digital and we can do everything digital and that's terrific. So let's pick one thing that you do. Maybe it's how you handle a purchase order. 
to a supplier or something like that. Let's, okay. let's automate that. Or you want, a, you want a mobile app that's going to go out and do these 47 things and it's great and you're going to get a million subscribers. Terrific. Let's pick a few features, get it out there into the stores, put some promotion behind it, see how people respond to it, learn from it, get the feedback. One of the beauties of the world as it has evolved in technology is between app stores for mobile apps and SaaS and cloud-based platforms is you can constantly test and tweak and test and tweak. You're no longer having to send out boxes of installation CDs or whatever, right. um, like in the bad old days. So you can be very nimble. You could, you know, people, the term minimum viable product you know, used to be an industry term and it's kind of leaked out. Now everybody likes to talk about having an MVP, but very often people don't quite appreciate the spirit of that. But the idea of doing the least amount of work to get the most amount of feedback. I'm not saying the most amount of impact, the most amount of feedback. What can I learn from the least amount of work I can do to find out if I'm on the right track, if I need to make some adjustments, maybe I can learn something new, maybe some of my assumptions were faulty. So absolutely start small and move forward in steps. Yeah, there may be some big bang thing that's part of your system that you can have a team working on that, you know, Oh, what those guys in that room are doing, that won't see the light of day for nine months, but that's okay because we're doing this other stuff here to validate what they're doing and to maybe make some corrections to what they're doing based on what we're learning. The days of locking a team in a room for 12 or 18 months and sliding food under the door, they release this thing with great fanfare, that hardly ever works. Uh, yeah, I 100% agree. I also think too that nothing's a bigger motivator to get us another version out as quick as possible if you're embarrassed by your current version. And so you roll out this MVP, obviously it might have only a couple of features, you're looking for feedback, but you're, you should almost be embarrassed by it because you want to get as much feedback as possible, iterate as quick as possible, get, a, get a ver another version out that's less embarrassing until you have kind of this beta version or a version one that is decent enough to maybe start charging some revenue or, or what's your thoughts around that? Well, I wouldn't so much talk about like it being embarrassing because as we all know, you get one chance to make a first impression. Sure. I would actually take a different view of that to say, start small with an incremental thing, but do that one thing exceptionally well Okay. And pick something or pick some collections of things that delivers some sort of tangible value. Maybe it's only entertainment value. Maybe you're giving your customers a chance to just look up their, their orders, whatever feature it is. Pick something that in and of itself has value and do it 100%. Don't throw some ugly programmer-driven prototype out there. Do something that you can be proud of, even if it only does one thing, but it does it well. Um, that's my perspective on that. So it's not a question about catching up and embarrassed. The embarrassment is if you take six months, launch something, it gets a whole bunch of things wrong once customers see it and you realize you misstepped and then you're scrambling to fix it with a version 1.2 that changes all those things that you got wrong because you didn't come out incrementally and test. That's embarrassing. Starting small, especially in this, in this world, people are used to this. They're, they're used to mobile apps to do one or two things. Um, 
I'm sure I could probably come up with a half a dozen examples of businesses where you just don't have that luxury. You can't even step out the front door until you've got these 15 features working. And that's just, okay, sometimes that's the luck of the draw and you have to work around that. Most businesses who are looking to go digital can probably, if they think about it, come up with two or three things that if we could just do that, that would get our customers excited. Now you've got them excited. Now they've loaded your app, they've got it on their phone, and I'm focusing now on mobile, but it really applies everywhere. They're using this, they're getting some value out of it. You now have the ability to push them messages because they've logged in now, you have a connection to them. You've now got a digital relationship with your customer. Your business is in their pocket. Maybe it's only doing one little thing right now, but it's in their pocket. So now you come out with the next piece of value and you let them know. And now you come up the next one. And maybe six or seven steps down the line of offering them value where they can maybe get some information and help themselves. Then you come out with something that gives them an opportunity to buy something new. Now you're starting to build, bring business in. If you do that with discipline, you can get there smoothly and not have to ever be embarrassed and not ever have to ever apologize. Quite the opposite. You'll have customers saying, are you guys going to add this? Could you do, could I do this on my app? And you can say, it's coming. It's on the roadmap. And people are accustomed to that. They're used to that. They're used to things changing every time they take their phone out. One, one or two of their apps is doing something different than it did last time. They're comfortable with that. And the, and the technology platforms let you do that. No, I, I think that's but, really good advice. Keep going. Sorry. No, I'm just going to sum up, but it, it takes discipline. And it's probably one of the most, the various flavors of self-discipline are hugely important to fielding technology. So how have you gained that discipline over the years and what advice do you give to people that struggle with that? Because that's a hard thing to learn and actually stick to. Yeah, well, you know, you can lead a horse to water, right? I, can, I guess, I yeah. Can only I can do my best to explain these things to customers and potential customers and show them examples of what did and didn't work and tell them, you know, stories from history or from our own history. Um, in the end, they, they have to make their choices. They have to make their decisions and, and we'll go with it. Uh, I've had a few cases where I've just basically told customers, I can't do what they're asking me to do. So I don't think it's the right thing. They'll have to find somebody else. Interesting. Um, that's not nearly as noble as it sounds. It just means that I don't want to have to pick up the pieces later. That's fair. Um, but, um, you know, more often than not, customers will, will, will see that point and, you know, and they'll understand and we'll move forward incrementally and they'll start to see the payback and they'll start to get excited. Um, sometimes when they don't see it and they say, I'm going to go find somebody to do what I want. I say, okay, I'll be here when you need me. And on more than a few occasions, they come back well, yeah, we went to this offshore company and they said they could do it in three months and it didn't work out and this and this and that. It's okay, we're still here. I've been here for 30 years. I'll be here for another year. Um, <laughs> and, and we'll help them out. Um, sometimes you have, to, you have to bash your shin against the coffee table in order to learn your way around the living room. And some people will do that. No, that's fair. I, I think that's, that's actually really good advice. Is there any other advice that you would give to people that are looking to digitize a piece or their business? I could probably go on for hours as I think about all the different things I'd give them advice about, but I think, and this all ties into everything I've been saying about incrementally and all that, 
you need, and most people innately understand their own customers. Certainly if you've been in business for any period of time and you're in any level of success, you have an innate feeling and understanding of your customers and how they work. When you're going down the path, it's a little bit of a challenge to take a step back, kind of shake the etch-a-sketch in your brain to clear it off and take a fresh look at your customer relationships. Think, how could this be different in a digital world? What is the thing that I can do for these customers that is most valuable to them that can be done digitally? Right. There may be seven other things that you know are the most valuable to them, but you know what? They involve you or your staff or your team. And you know, they're not ready to be digitized. So you find you put them over on the shelf. What are the key things? And it all boils down to having a clear understanding about your current relationship with your customers and your suppliers or wherever your, your audience is, how they perceive you and your business and how you can alter that perception with digital offerings. And sometimes it's, it's eye-opening where you, businesses go through this thought process and they think and, and they look at their own processes and they say, wow, I never realized it took seven emails to do this thing here. Right. And you're telling me we could do that thing there on a web page? And the answer is, yes, we can. We just have to do these other things behind the scenes. And they go, okay, let's start with that. And, and that's really what boils down because it's so easy just to sort of get lost in the the, the way things work, because that's the way things always been. Take that fresh look. I don't know if that was a good answer for you, but. No, I, I think it was a good answer, but we're kind of coming to the end of the show. So how about we close with mentioning where people can get more information about yourself and anything else you want to mention? Sure. Well, one of the uh, benefits about being in the business so long as I was lucky enough to get a very short URL back yes. in the day. So we are at www.avi.com, Albert Irene for Applied Visions Inc. Easy to find. Um, I'm easy to reach, although you have to put my spelling of my name on your website, but uh, I'm one of only two or three Frank Zinganis on LinkedIn, so I should be pretty easy to find there. Um, you can even call me if you like, 631-759-3901. I love talking to customers. I love talking about technology and business and how the two can work together, so I'm always here. Perfect. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to be on the show. And I look forward to keeping in touch with you and have a good rest of your day. Hey, this has been great fun talking to you. I enjoyed the conversation. I enjoyed the other interviews on your site. Um, never going to get that evening back because I probably <laughs> listened to like nine or 10 of them. Um, so thanks very much for your time. Thank you. Okay. Bye. Hello. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website at buildingthefutureshow.com to join the free community sign up for our newsletter, or to sponsor the show. The music is done by Electric Mantra. You can check him out at electricmantra.com and keep building the future.